all men and women, being created in the image of God, have inherent and equal dignity and worth. Their greatest purpose is to obey, worship and love God. As a result of the fall of our first parents, every aspect of human nature has been corrupted and all men and women are without spiritual life, they're guilty sinners and hostile to God. Every person is therefore under the condemnation of God and needs to be born again, forgiven and reconciled to God in order to know and please him. I said two things in starting last week. I said that we must remember that our statement of faith is not an inspired piece of scripture. It is written by men and we believe it is accurate, but there there can be times and there may well be times where you want to change certain words. You feel that word doesn't say it as well as another. Or you'd like to reverse the words around a bit. And we can do that to a degree because this is not an inspired piece of scripture. We don't treat it the same way. But Bill was right. We need to test it constantly against the scripture. And the other thing I said at the beginning of uh, our time last time was that um, we um, must be very careful. Well, I must be very careful, particularly not to treat this like some kind of theology lecture. That's the temptation, because I quite enjoy lecturing in theology. There's nothing better for me than having a good old debate about theology. But for those who came to me after the service last Sunday and said, it's okay, Rob, it wasn't too bad. Thank you for that. Uh, I'll attempt my best not to uh, create a, a theology lecture environment here. We're at the second part, if you like, of our third Uh, part of the statement of faith. We've already looked at the first part, and we've um, looked at what I might call the good news of this statement, where we are created in God's image, and we talked about that, and all of the wonderful significance and value that we have because we are created in his image. But of course, the statement doesn't stop there. It goes on and shares with us, unfortunately, what we might call the bad news of this statement, Although it does end on a note of hope, there certainly is some darker tone to the statement here. It's a lot more somber than the first one is. And I think you'll see very clearly that if you look at it carefully, there's, a, in a sense, a statement of what the problem is, particularly after the fall of man, after the sin of Adam and Eve, and then what the solution might be when we come to look at that. So we're going to start by looking at this question of the problem. And one of the questions we need to ask this morning is this. After mankind sinned, after we sinned, after Adam and Eve sinned, can we still be be called as being in the image of God? Remember we said the image of God is to be similar to or a little bit like, but also to be a representation of. So is sinful man, is sinful woman still in the image of God, or something happened. And the Lord's been very good to us in helping us through this. Some of the earliest uh, words we hear from him directly are, for example, to Noah in, in, um, in Genesis chapter 9. And in this chapter, one of the things he does, because the world is a pretty messy place during the time of Noah. In fact, it's not unlike the world we live in today, to be frank. And God says this to Noah. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
Why? Because God made man in his image. So what's he saying here? God is saying that the likeness of God remains in people even though they have sinned. And therefore, if you kill somebody who is in the image of God, you're doing something very seriously bad. Because you're murdering, you're killing the high point of God's creation. Therefore, God says to Noah, you may institute the death penalty in that case. And that's, that's really, although we have debates today about the death penalty, that's not the issue here. What we see very clearly here is that we still see man, women, young people, as sinful as they might be, as marred as the image might be, they're still in the image of God, still created in the image of God. We are created in his image. But let's see then what the result of all of this is. What has actually happened? And the statement is very clear, and we're going to pick the statement apart a little bit by little bit. But as we do that, before we get into the statement itself, we need to ask one or two very brief questions. The first one, I guess, would be, what, what exactly is sin then? What is this horrible thing that Adam and Eve did? I think sin, if you were to ask for a definition, you'd probably say something straightforward like, sin is any failure to conform to the law of God, to the moral law of God, either in act or in attitude or in nature. The things we do, the things we think, the things we feel, the way we are. Sinful. Our very nature, the internal character that is the very essence of who we are, the Bible says, is sinful. And so the question is, where, of course, does it then come from? Where did all this sin arise? Well, we know for certain from the scriptures and from everything that we know about God that he is not sinful. We know that he has never sinned, will never sin, and can never sin. And yet, here we are. And we also believe that God cannot be blamed for our sinfulness. So where does it come from? Well, of course, from the Genesis record, we find that sin enters the universe, as it were, initially, with the rebellion of certain of the angels, the created uh, creatures, the spiritual creatures that God has created. Satan, Lucifer, and some of his, his cohorts rebel against God. And then we enter into the the book of Genesis proper, and we begin to see more and more about how Adam and Eve sinned. And in each case, whether it be the, the angels, whether it be Adam and Eve, they all sinned by voluntary choice. You notice I didn't say free will. I'm a little bit worried, and this is me, I'm a little bit worried about free will, simply because I'm not sure my will has ever been free simply because it is so tainted and so marred by my human nature. It might feel as if it's free, but I'm pretty certain it's free. But I do make real choices, nonetheless, and this is what Adam and Eve did. So God was not surprised at all by what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That sin never challenged God. He never, he, it never overcame his omnipotence or his control, and he wasn't caught unawares by it. 
I don't see God standing there watching, don't eat that, don't eat that, oh, you've gone and eaten that, I didn't think you were going to. Nothing like that at all. God did ordain that sin would enter the world. As difficult as that may be for us to comprehend right now. But God does not delight in sin. Even though he ordained that it would come about via the voluntary choice of Adam and Eve. So what exactly did Adam and Eve then do? Well, this story of the garden in, in Genesis has been, the, has been the, uh, the foundation of many interesting little tales. Some have rosy red apples. Uh, others have all sorts of strange slithering snakes. And there's all sorts of funny artwork about what it was like. The Bible is, doesn't give us that much detail, although there is talk of a fruit and there is talk of some form of statement, and I see the NIV does say snake. It's not necessarily snake, it's some form of serpent. But what we don't have is a picture of some kind of spoil sport God who puts these two guys in the garden and says, you're not allowed to do much here. This is not going to be fun for you lot. You can only do this and only do that. That's not what God says to them. Satan is the one who does what he always does, because he's still doing it today, He twists the words of God. So if you look carefully at what it looks like in the garden, God is speaking to Adam. And he says, listen to this carefully. You are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Wow. But you must not eat from that one tree. Tree of good, knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat from that one tree, you will surely die. Satan comes along. Satan's talking to Eve. I think he picks on her because Eve didn't hear apparently directly from God. She got this from Adam. Look how Satan attempts to twist the situation. What does he say? He says, Now the serpent was more crafty crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the women, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What did God say? You are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Satan says, did he really say you're not allowed to eat of any tree in the garden? Eve corrects him. She says, no, 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 it wasn't quite like that, but she's beginning to get a little bit uncertain. She's beginning to, well, what did God say? What didn't God say? And she replies actually quite correctly initially. So Satan tackles her one more time. He says, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And that's what Satan does. He twists things. He turns things around and makes it very difficult. So they rebelled. They did the one thing that God said they weren't to do. Because in doing that, they were putting themselves at a level with God and even in place of God. And the sin they committed, the eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree, It's actually a very, very good example of what sin is generally like. 
Because that sin, and most sins, strike at the very basis of knowledge. Sin gives a totally different answer to the question, what is true? When you sin, everything seems to change. All of a sudden, you're questioning things that you knew are true, that you know in your heart are true. Whether it be about the existence of God, whether it be about the reality of sin, whatever it is about, sin comes in and says, no, 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 that's not true. God hasn't said that. This is what he means. And it changes the very basis of our knowledge. That's what sin does. Secondly, sin strikes at the very basis of our moral standards. It gives a totally different answer to another question. What is right? Until sin comes into one's life as an innocent child, the world is very different. But very, very soon, you begin to say, oh, you know, that's right, that's wrong. And, you begin, and sin begins to twist everything and turn everything around. So that years later, that which was right is now wrong, and that which was wrong was, is now right all of a sudden. That's what sin does. Thirdly, sin strikes at the very basis of who we are as people, our human identity. It gives a very different answer to the question, who am I? In sin, we begin to believe all sorts of things about ourselves. I'm a psychologist by trade, and you'd be surprised the things people say about themselves. They say, I am this, I am that, I am the other. When they couldn't be further from the truth, we are created in the image of God. We have inherent value and worth. Sin comes along and says, ah, it's not like that. Something quite different. Sin says, as Nick was saying, you're all equal, you're all the same. Sin comes along and says, no, 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 we're not actually the same. I'm not like you, look at you. That's what sin does. And finally, sin comes along and it's just so irrational. It doesn't make sense why Satan and his angels should have rebelled. And what on earth were Adam and Eve thinking by disobeying their creator? It doesn't make sense. It's irrational. This was a foolish choice, be it a voluntary one. And then what are the results of this action? How does the sin then of Adam and Eve affect us? And here I'm going to reverse the order of the words just a little bit because I think that putting them in a slightly better order as far as I'm concerned. One of the things that happened to us is we are pronounced guilty. We are guilty sinners, the statesman says. We are counted as guilty as a result of Adam's sin. I don't know whether you'd like to turn to your Bible very briefly to Romans chapter 5. It's on page 1132. Just for one or two verses here, Romans chapter 5 from verse 12, 1132 in your pew Bible. Paul is writing, church in Rome, and says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Because Adam sinned, Since that time, all sinned. Paul's not here talking necessarily about the actual sins we commit day by day, but he's talking more about our our nature, this inherited sinful nature. 
as the whole paragraph from 12 to 21 is taken up with this comparison between the nature of Adam and the nature of Christ. So this idea that all sinned means that God is thinking of us as having sinned when Adam sinned and originally disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. If we go a little bit further, sorry, we go a little bit further in verses 13 and 14. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's count where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though those who did not sin by breaking a specific command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. So what Paul is saying here is that from the time of Adam to the time of the coming of the law with Moses, people did not have God's written law. And yet they still sinned, and those sins were still counted as infractions of God's moral law. And as a result, like Adam, like Eve, they still died. And the fact that they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin. And then the idea that God counted us guilty because Adam's sin is further affirmed in one or two verses here, in verse 18 and 19, Consequently, verse 18, just as one trespass, that's Adam's sin, resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, with a capital M, Many will be made righteousness, righteous. So as our representative Adam sinned, God counts us as guilty as Adam. Sometimes we use the technical term impute here. God imputed Adam's sin to us. And I can hear the word almost being muttered. That's not fair. That's not fair. I wasn't there, didn't do nothing. What happened? Why is this all of a sudden fair? Well, I think every protest we make must surely be drowned out by the myriad of sins we commit day after day after day, for which God holds us guilty. In fact, it's these sins that occur on a day-by-day basis that constitute the primary basis for our condemnation and judgment on that final day. From Romans 2, we see it, Colossians 3. Perhaps the most persuasive argument about why this is maybe not as unfair as we think it is has to do something with what we've already mentioned. If we think it is not fair that Adam, that we are represented by Adam in the matter of guilt and sin, then how can we possibly think it's fair that we should be represented by one man, Jesus Christ, in terms of our righteousness. Some say, well, maybe the way to think about it is to say, well, if, if it wasn't Adam and Eve and it was Rob and Denise, they would have done the same thing. So, hey, it doesn't really help anything, that argument, but it's probably true. So we are guilty. We are guilty. We are guilty sinners. 
We've also been corrupted. Our nature, that nature we talked about, that, that significant, all of that stuff has been corrupted. The Bible makes it clear that as a result, Adam and Eve, their sin, every human being since then has inherited a corrupted and sinful nature. Sometimes we talk about original sin or original pollution. David, the great poet, the great king, knew this as well as anybody, and he didn't have theology lectures. Psalm 51, listen to a man who knows his sinfulness. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from this sin. And in verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Anyone who has raised children or is in the process of raising children can give exceptional testimony to the fact that we are all born with a tendency to sin. None of you here have taught your children to lie. They will one day. You've not taught them to be deceitful, but they will be. You've not taught them to cheat, but it's likely they will. You've not taught them to rebel. But hey-ho, I always say the first 20 years of parenthood are the worst. It's still coming. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 that as parents we are to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul goes on in Ephesians to say that before we became Christians, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But there's another very dark and deep word that is used here in our statement of faith. We're condemned. Condemnation. Time, time is slipping by, so I want to move quite quickly here and just refer to a few words from Jesus and one or two from Paul where we, he talks about this. Now, we're all familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16 and the whole story of Nicodemus, but we sometimes forget to read a little bit further because this is where it becomes very clear. God so loved the world, yes, that he gave his, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus continues to say to Nicodemus, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned forever because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And Jesus used the word from which we get our word crisis. It's just spelt with a K. And it's a word that is, speaks of a judgment that is passed down by a court or a tribunal. Sin results in a verdict of guilt and condemnation. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, this time verse 16, if you're still there. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Paul uses a different word, which means about, it's also about a verdict, but it's usually a guilty verdict, a sentence to follow. So here we have this devastating effect of sin. It's not about guilt only. 
It's not only about corruption, but it's about condemnation. Condemnation, it's a, it's a legal term. When you sit in there and you hear the verdict, and it says condemned, guilty, and you ushered off into an eternity apart from God. is isn't finished yet. We're spiritually dead as a result of sin. Bringing us back to the day by day, the Bible teaches clearly that it's not just a part of us that is sinful and other parts are pure. We're dead in our sin. The ugly fact is, and I know this, I know this so well, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our bodies, our intellect, our goals, our ambitions, our emotions, our desires, our motives, they're all corrupted Paul says, for I know that good itself does not abide in me. That is in my sinful nature. It's from Romans 7 where he's really wrestling with these things. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciousness, consciences are corrupted. Way back in the Old Testament time, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul pulls no punches. He calls it spiritual death. And writing to the Corinthian church, he says, As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Spiritual death is the term the Bible uses to describe the lost man, woman, or young person. The one who turns his or her back on Christ. And it's only when you come to life in Christ, and I, 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 I have this hope for everyone here this morning. When you come to life in Christ, you realize how dead you really were. One more nasty word. Hostility. We're hostile to God outside of Christ. Romans chapter 3 from verse 10 onwards. Paul quotes from a number of verses from the Psalms and from the book of Isaiah. It gives a very good picture of the man or woman who is spiritually dead and living in a hostile world, in a hostile rebellion. And once again, the Bible has this way of making it sound as if it's happening today, just like this. Paul says, There is none righteous. Not one. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. 21st century. Sometimes we have to realize that it's not just the individual who suffers from hostility towards God, but it's because of that whole societies do. And I'm, I'm beginning to forget about all this chatter about living in a Christian country where less than 2% profess to be Christian. And day by day we see society becoming more and more promiscuous 
and more and more ungodly. And month by month, even our lawmakers seem to be passing more and more legislation that will be making it more and more difficult to live a pure and honest Christian life. Man without God is hostile to God. So is the world in which we live. That's not a pretty picture. And I don't enjoy doing that. Taking a piece of this case from our statement of faith and saying, this is what the Bible says. In these days, it's not always considered good pulpit practice to talk about all these dark things. Let's just talk about love, brother. Love, love, love. You know, I was brought up in the 60s. Make love, not war. But there's more than love in the world. There's a lot of hostility and death and corruption. Okay, well, that's the bad news. There is provision. Every person, statement of faith says, needs to be born again, forgiven, and reconciled to God in order to know and please Him. So there is a way out. And I call this the invasion of grace. God enters this mess. He sends his son to pay the price for the sin and the guilt. And and he does it all through amazing grace. He doesn't ask us to do a single thing about it. Amazing, amazing grace. I want to share something with you that I don't normally do. I was in another church a few weeks back, and some of you were there with me. We were witnessing the baptism of a good friend of ours. The preacher that morning was a young fellow who was in a theological institute, learning to become a pastor, and the church concerned was hoping to call him to ministry. And I enjoyed what he has to say, had to say. I really did. I thought he sounded like a really good young man. Except he said two things that left my mouth gaping open. And those around me, I hope you didn't notice too much, but I was shocked considering the denomination this person was coming from. And this is what he said. He said, he was talking about Stephen, uh, sorry, Philip, and the youth Ethiopian eunuch and the meeting in the chariot on the way through the desert. And the first thing he said was, God always waits for us to take the first step. We must first call out to God, and then God comes running. That's the first thing he said. And two or three minutes later, he said this, So you see, salvation is 50-50. I think maybe he wasn't listening in class that well. I cannot believe his lecturer told him that. No, 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 no. Uh, It's not like that at all. The solution is God's solution applied to us. It's what he does. We can be born again. The answer is, and this is the answer to spiritual death and corruption. And the clearest of all conversations on this matter is that dialogue we've already referred to between Nicodemus and Christ in John 3. A little bit earlier in that dialogue, Jesus says to Nicodemus and gets him totally confused, even though Nicodemus is a scholar, Jesus says, well, I I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God until they're born again. You sense a pause right here. Nicodemus looks puzzled, and then he says, how can someone be born when they are dead? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He's puzzled. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God 
Unless they are born of water and the spirit, flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit, the spirit gives birth to spirit. We call this in theology regeneration, being born again. And it's an act of God by which he imparts new spiritual life into the life of a man or woman. New spiritual life. It's a total work of God and we play no part in it whatsoever. We can bring nothing to the table at this point. Just as we played no part at all, unless you're very special in your own physical birth. Played no part at all in your conception. We certainly play a part when it comes to repentance and so on, but even those are gifts from God. John has the words in the beginning of his gospel. To all who receive him, to those who believed in him, this is Jesus, his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children, listen to this, born not of natural descent, born not of a human decision or a human will, no, 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 but born of God. So much so that Paul can say, if anyone is now in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. This is the question that we must pose this morning. Are you a new creation this morning? Has God done that work in your heart? This work of regeneration that you couldn't do for yourself? Has he come in and changed your life? Or are you holding on stubbornly? To your old life. God wants to lift you from spiritual death and give you new, spiritual, everlasting, abundant life. There can be forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the answer to guilt and condemnation. There is a part that we can play, and that is to repent of our sins. When God lifts it, puts it upon our heart to realize where we are, we repent, we cry out to him in heartfelt and sincere sorrow for our sin, and we turn away towards a commitment of living for Christ. And then God gives us, which for me as a human being, and there's nothing theological about this, God's greatest gift to me is forgiveness. Forgiveness. John, again, this time in his first letter, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A little poem was given to me when I was a teacher many, many years ago. A young child says, He came to my desk with quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new page for me, dear teacher? I've, I've spoiled this one. And I took his page all soiled and blotted. And I gave him a new one all unspotted. And into his tired heart I smiled. Do better now, my child. I came to God's throne with trembling heart. The year was done. Have you a new year for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. And he took my year all soiled and blotted, and he gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my broken heart he smiled, do better now, my child. Have you experienced the cleansing that comes with forgiveness? 
or you're being ground down under the hammer of guilt and you're burdened by a belief that God can't forgive you. Believe me, you cannot sin yourself out of the reach of God's forgiveness. You can't do it. Forget about this business about unforgivable sins. Don't get into that. You cannot sin yourself out of the reach of God's forgiveness. That's what he wants to do. And then we can be reconciled to God. This is the answer to our hostility. Our relationship can be restored. We deserve to die and death is the penalty. But Christ has appeared to put away sin by sacrificing himself for it. We deserve nothing more than to bear God's wrath against our sin. But John says in this, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're separated from God by our sins. We're hostile to him. We need someone to provide reconciliation. And Paul says this, God through Christ reconciled us to him. And gave us a ministry of reconciliation that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So we can know and we can love and please God. So I want to repeat my invitation as I close. Have you had this experience this morning? Has God come into your life and made the changes? Maybe you have all of the head knowledge in the world about church and Christianity. Maybe you've gone along with all of the activities of the church. You may have lived a life attempting to good to do good to others. You may have made sacrifices and given generously to good causes. You may have many great Christian friends and you're able to say all the right things and there's absolutely nothing wrong with anything I've said there. But you know that you've never in all these years personally knelt at the cross and invited Jesus into your life. You've never repented of your sin. You've never asked his forgiveness. Now's the time to do that.